and uh, glad you're here with me this morning. And for those online, uh, it's good to have you with us as well. You know, I like to I jump I like to jump straight into things here. Uh, if I waited for everybody to show up, uh, it would be about 10:10 before I I got anything done. Because uh, when you're up here, you can see the people just uh, all through class. You know, we get a couple more people every minute. Uh, so I, I, I'm going to go ahead and jump in here. Uh, we've been talking about Paul. Uh, we're talking this week, uh, going to continue talking about his letters to the church in Thessalonica. Uh, so we, we talked about Second Thessalonians last week, and this week we're going to talk about First Thessalonians. Just to, to recap where we've been, uh, Paul and Silas and Timothy have been traveling through Greece. Uh, they started up in the, the northern part of Greece in Macedonia. Uh, they went to Philippi, uh, where we have the, the account of Paul and Silas in jail. Uh, quick visit to Thessalonica and Berea. Paul goes down to Athens. And then from Athens, he goes to Corinth. Uh, he meets up with uh, Priscilla and Aquila, Aquila and Priscilla, whichever order you wanted to talk about them in. Uh, and from Corinth, he ends up staying a while. We talked about this last week. Uh, and it's from Corinth that he appears to write these letters back to the, the church that he just started in Thessalonica. Last week we talked about this inscription, uh, the, the Delphi inscription, because it's found in the city of Delphi, uh, and lots of stuff on there. But the important thing for us is it mentions the name Gallio, uh, and it gives us a year uh, that he was the proconsul of this area around the year 51 A.D. And because he's mentioned in Acts 18, Paul goes and stands before this proconsul Gallio in Corinth. That's the, the, the key for unlocking the timeline of Paul's life, uh, that we know from that anchor point in the middle, we can work backwards to say, well, Paul probably became a Christian around 33 A.D., uh, a couple years after Jesus was crucified, uh, and then we can work through his life up to around 51 to say he's in Corinth at this point. Uh, and then for the future part of Paul's life, we're going to be able to do the same thing, working from this one date. Uh, so this is a, a key bit of archaeological evidence for understanding Paul's timeline. It puts, us, puts Paul in Corinth in or around the year 51 A.D. Uh, we talked about that last week. We also talked about Second Thessalonians. Uh, and here's the, the, the basic outline here, uh, three chapters, each one ending with a prayer. Uh, so he starts off with this, this thanksgiving for the Thessalonians. Uh, the second chapter is a message about the coming of Jesus, and then the, the final chapter about uh, idleness. And we focused on that second chapter, uh, this uh, passage in particular. I'll go ahead and read, it, read back over it for us uh, he says, don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come, the day of the Lord's coming he's talking about, until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? Uh, which we said, no, Paul, actually, we don't remember. Uh, we weren't with you in Thessalonica when you told us more about what you were talking about here, because uh, to us, this sounds pretty strange, uh, and we're not exactly sure what you're saying. Uh, but if you were here last week, you, you do know I gave you the, 
the authoritative, definitive answer uh, to who this man of lawlessness is. Uh, and so if you, if you weren't here last week, I'm sorry you missed that. Uh, but I guess you could look on YouTube and find out uh, that, in fact, I didn't give you the definitive answer. I gave you some possibilities uh, for what, he, what Paul is talking about here. Uh, we, we said, you know, this is some language that we see uh, in multiple places in Scripture. Book of Daniel, Book of Revelation, uh, and Jesus talks this way on occasion as well. This, this vivid imagery uh, to talk about the, this clash of kingdoms, uh, but, but seeing the, the, the power behind it of God and Satan struggling. I don't know if God's, God's not the one struggling, I guess, but there's this, uh, this spiritual dimension to the, the conflict as well. Uh, it, there's some, some basic ways that people will interpret this kind of passage, whether it's here in Thessalonians or it's in Daniel or Revelation. Uh, we can say that this is something that happened in the past, uh, in which case this man of lawlessness uh, is some figure in the Roman Empire uh, who destroys the temple in just a few years after Paul writes this uh, and persecutes the church. Uh, so that's uh, a popular interpretation. We, we see for other places uh, where Jesus is, is using this language, he, he hints at that maybe even more strongly uh, because the, the, the disciples are asking, you know, tell us about when this temple is going to be destroyed. Uh, so we see hints of that. Uh, but here in Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians, we have to ask, well, was that really the, the coming of, the, of Jesus in the first century, A.D. 70, when the temple's destroyed? Uh, it doesn't really seem to fit for us. Uh, so our second option would be to, to say, that well, this man of lawlessness is, is the end times figure that, w- that comes up. Uh, the beast, uh, the little horn, uh, what we sometimes get called as the, the antichrist, even though that's not uh, the language that, that Scripture would use for it, as this figure called the antichrist. Uh, that, that's a common way to talk about it. Uh, and so that's the other possibility. Or we, we kind of... Uh, what I consider the cop-out is to say uh, this is a repeating pattern in history uh, and to see this as threats against the church uh, over and over again where political leaders have, have threatened the church with persecution and the church has suffered uh, but endured through that. Uh, so that those are your, your basic options and you can come up with uh, more details on either one of those. Generally, when I, when I come to these sorts of of passages, I, I, I usually try the, the first option first to say, well, does this fit in the past? Uh, and some, for Daniel especially, we see a lot of stuff in Daniel fits with the, the, the past uh, events that we know. Uh, but sometimes we, we, do, we aren't able to, to see anything lining up. Uh, and so my, my next choice is probably the, the last one here, the looking for some sort of historical pattern. Uh, it's only if I really can't get something with either one of those, I'll go to the, the middle one and say, well, this must just be something in the future. Uh, but, like I said, there, there's proponents of all of these, uh, and I'm not going to weigh in too hardly on uh, what I think it should be. Well, that brings us now to the book of First Thessalonians. We're ready to, to dig into this. Now, I, I mentioned last week that we don't know which, what order the books were written in. 
even though one's called first and one's called second, uh, they're labeled that way just because of their size. That first, first Thessalonians is longer than second Thessalonians. It doesn't tell us anything about the chronology. Uh, so there's a chance, at least, that uh, second Thessalonians was written first and first Thessalonians was written second. Uh, so I, I chose to cover it that way, but I don't really have a strong opinion about that either. Uh, the book of Thess- First Thessalonians looks a lot like Second Thessalonians. Uh, the bo- they both start with this long section of thanksgiving. Uh, so chapter one of both of them is, is Paul being, expressing his thanks for the Thessalonian church uh, that despite persecution that they have endured and remained faithful for that. Uh, Both books also uh, end these sections with prayer. Uh, So at the end of this this middle section of of 1 Thessalonians, he ends with a prayer, and then at the end as well, he has a prayer. Uh, The the reminder of their history, uh, this is what lets us put these books at this point in Paul's life, Uh, that he talks about how he had been in Thessalonica and he, he had had to leave he wanted to go back, uh, but was not able to, to go back and visit them. This lines up with what we see in Acts. Uh, but in Athens, he, he, he couldn't uh, wait anymore. Uh, so he sends Timothy back to Thessalonica to check on them. He knows they're, they're suffering persecution, and he doesn't know, are they they're going to endure this? Or are they going to fall away? Uh, perhaps as he thin, sends Timothy... Maybe he sends Timothy with a letter, like 2 Thessalonians, uh, to give them just an initial encouragement. Uh, And then Timothy comes back to to Paul with a good report. And uh, Paul is just uh, so joyful to hear that the Thessalonians are doing well. Uh, So he writes them this letter, 1 Thessalonians. Uh, the, The last part chapters 4 and 5. He's talking about uh, purity uh, and the coming of Jesus. Uh, And Chris has just gone through uh, this letter pretty recently with us, and so you can go back on YouTube and and view those. He did a great job, I think. Uh, So we're not going to go too deep on this, but maybe we'll we'll hit this coming of Jesus passage like we did in 2 Thessalonians. Uh, Before we get into that, maybe we need to uh, sort of a basic reorientation to the afterlife. Uh, I think when we read Scripture, we have this foundational assumption that we're, we're starting with this and we're, we're fitting the, the biblical pieces on top of that assumption that we don't even, don't even realize we're doing. Uh, and when, we're, when we do that, we're able to come up with this coherent picture. Uh, but I, I'm actually saying, well, maybe, what if we question that foundation, and then we put these biblical pieces on top of a different assumption, we're going to get a a slightly different picture. And maybe you say it's not too big of a distinction, uh, but I I think there is at least some uh, different emphasis here for us. So I'd say uh, typically in our culture, uh, we have this view that uh, at the end of time, the earth is destroyed and we go to heaven. Uh, so this is our, our songs about when we all get to heaven and our mansion over the hilltop. Uh, and I'm not exactly sure if that is the biblical perspective. Uh, when I read scripture, I see 
this message over and over again, or at least a couple times, uh, of the coming together of a new heaven and a new earth. Uh, So it's not that the earth is destroyed and we go to heaven, but we have this new earth and a new heaven. Uh, We we see this, you know, starting in Isaiah uh, is one of the first places we get this. Uh, God says, look, I'm creating new heavens and a new earth, and no one will even think about the old ones anymore. We even go all the way back to the beginning. Uh, In the beginning, God created two things, the heavens and the earth. And the picture in Genesis seems to be like these are almost touching realms, that in the, in the garden uh, we see people and God uh, in this shared space. Uh, but with the coming of sin, uh, there's this separation uh, so that uh, our, our earth, uh, we get these glimpses of God, but it's not God walking among us in the garden. Uh, like it was before sin. Uh, and so the, the, the picture then becomes is God is restoring what he originally created. So in Revelation, we get the same image that, that started in Isaiah. Uh, John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. So in Revelation, the, the movement is not us going to heaven. Uh, it's this, this city coming from heaven into this new heaven and earth. Uh, so there's still movement, but it's in the opposite direction. Uh, so you know, perhaps uh, less about us going to heaven and God returning and reuniting uh, these, these realms as he originally created them. So that's maybe my first point. Uh, the second uh, reorientation I would make uh, is we have this conception in our culture that when you die, your soul will be freed from your body. Uh, and once again, our, our songs talk about this, that uh, like a, a bird from a... What's the word? The bird from prison, cage, can fly, uh, I'll fly away. Uh, so you, you, your body's like this prison for you, uh, this bird cage. And once you're free from uh, this body, then you can fly off to heaven. So you can see how they're kind of uh, linked in that way. Uh, but I think if you read Scripture, it's not that you lose your body. Uh, it's a consistent message of resurrection, of a new resurrection body. Uh, So it's not your soul just floating off somewhere, uh, but that you have a new body, uh, which makes sense. We have have a new earth. uh, You have a new body to inhabit that new heaven and new earth. And so we see this in Paul. The, The classic place to go would be 1 Corinthians 15. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable, and it it is raised imperishable. It's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. It's sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. So here we see, oh, spirit. So it is spirit, but he says, no, it's a spiritual body. Uh, So 
you keep reading in 1 Corinthians, he's, it's very difficult to understand what exactly this body is, uh, but it's a, a consistent picture of it's some kind of body that has some kind of connection to the bodies we have right now. Or, or uh, we read Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so they will be like his glorious body. So once again, the, the emphasis is on a body. It's a transformed body. Uh, it's glorious, uh, so which maybe doesn't help us understand what it is, but it's a body. And notice, I guess we get to the, the, the other idea here as well, uh, that uh, it's Jesus uh, coming, uh, nothing about us uh, going off, and our citizenship is in heaven. Now, I think we read this and think about, you know, we are in a foreign place, and we want to go back to our, our home country where we, we have our citizenship. And, and Jesus is coming, and he's going to bring us back to our, our true home in heaven. Uh, but that's not what it says. That's what we're filling in from this assumption about going to heaven. You think about Philippi as a, a Roman colony uh, that it, it's established mostly from, from Roman citizens, uh, soldiers, retired soldiers, uh, because the emperor doesn't want, uh, after they've established peace around the realm, you don't want a bunch of soldiers hanging out in Rome with nothing to do, no wars to fight, because uh, they're going to find a war to fight with you, maybe. Uh, so they had this idea, let's send out these soldiers, and we're going to start these Roman colonies. It'll be like this, this uh, little uh, mini-Rome out here in the middle of Greece. Uh, and so being a citizen is not about be- your, your desire to go home. It's, it's about the, the, the belief you have that where you are right now, uh, you are the one who has the connection to the true authority. Uh, and so if you're living as a Roman citizen in Philippi, uh, the, the hope is not of, you know, one day I get to go back to Rome. It's the, the trust that as a Roman citizen, even if something bad happens to me here, it's going to be made right. Uh, if, the emperor, if the emperor ever came, uh, he would make things right for me here. Uh, and so as Christian citizens, uh, we, we have that same hope that if something uh, happens to us here, when the true Lord and Emperor comes, uh, that things are going to be made right. Uh, and I, I don't think this one uh, also talks about us going uh, you know, back with him. We, we do get uh, maybe uh, some hints of uh, some, a different message for an intermediate step, uh, that before this day of resurrection, what happens to people? Uh, Paul's going to say in First Thessalonians about people sleeping. Uh, so there is this, this talk about of being with God in some uh, temporary time, that the, the criminal on the cross uh, is with Jesus in paradise. Uh, and so there, there is some talk of that, I and mean, I think we uh, maybe just go too far uh, when we, we read those passages. Okay, I think then we're ready to actually get into 1 Thessalonians, uh, where, they, where they have this basic question. 
Some Christians have died, and Jesus has not yet returned. So what's going to happen to these Christians who died? So you imagine the situation that Paul has traveled through Thessalonica and started a church. Uh, And now it's maybe just months, maybe a year or two later, and some of these Christians have died, Uh, maybe from the persecution that they've been undergoing. Uh, And they've been waiting for Jesus to to return, and they they expected it to be any day, uh, and now people have died, and Jesus has not yet returned. How can they experience the the coming of Jesus if they have already died? Uh, For us, this seems uh, like a problem we've never really experienced. We're so used to people, uh, Christians dying, uh, without the coming of the Lord. Uh, we, we've experienced that you know, hundreds of times in our own life, but you know, throughout history, it's now you know, thousands and millions of Christians have died. So we don't even think about this anymore. It's hard to even t- to imagine uh, the concern for them uh, as the, you know, these first Christians have died uh, before the coming of Jesus. And so Paul is writing to, to answer this question and, and to kind of fill in some, some detail about what uh, this is going to be. Uh, so let's just read together uh, from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, starting in verse 13. Paul writes, Brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you don't grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Okay? So he, to answer the question, he says, you know, don't worry. Okay? That we know that God who has raised Jesus from the dead uh, is going to take care of these people. He continues, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, if we start with our, I think, a faulty assumption of uh, you die and your spirit is floating around, um, and you're going off to heaven, the, the picture we get from this is that, you know, if you're out in the, in the cemetery, you'd start to see these spirits, and they'd be floating up to heaven. Uh, they're the ones who rise first, uh, and we watch them float away, and then uh, the rest of us are start, you know, start floating off, and uh, we go off back to heaven with Jesus, and I guess uh, we, 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 we keep filling in the gaps here. Well, that leaves these people here, uh, after this rapture, and so there's going to be uh, this time where uh, you know, it's the, the people who, who weren't Christians are left on earth. Uh, we, we start to fill in you know, Revelation and tie it in here. Uh, but I, I think we're, we're working from a, a faulty assumption with that. Uh, so the, the first point, you know, Paul is talking about rise uh, is resurrection. Uh, and so we, we, we assume... Uh, you know, to be consistent with how he always talks about resurrection every time, 
uh, that this is a resurrection, a, a resurrected body. Uh, but then what about this uh, going up in the clouds to meet the Lord? I, th- I think we, we can learn about a little bit uh, this, this image of the royal welcome. Uh, when, when the New Testament uses the word for the coming of Jesus, uh, this is a word that would be used to describe the arrival of a, a, you know, a king or an emperor, you know, other dignitary who visits a city. Uh, you know, the, the arrival of the emperor instead of the coming of Jesus. Uh, we, we maybe imagine, you know, for us today, uh, maybe not the president, because uh, anytime there's, for any president, there's always about half the people who really dislike whoever it is. Uh, and it doesn't really matter what the party is. I mean, that's just the way our, our system goes, is uh, most or half the people never like the president. But you think about, you know, maybe governor. Because uh, at least in Arkansas, we, I don't think people have a strong opinion often about the governor. So imagine the, the governor is coming uh, to your, your office or your school. Uh, what, what would people do if an important person is coming to visit your place, your your office, your job, your school. Uh, you're not just going to let them, you know, wander in and you know, look around, uh, ask, you know, for who they're looking for. Uh, if it's an important person, you're going to have somebody waiting for them to arrive, uh, and you're going to be, you know, they're going to be escorted around uh, so that they know where they're going. Uh, it would be an honor, I think, for most people to say, oh, "I'm going to be the one who, who waits." Uh, you know, stands out there and waits for this person to come, and then I'm going to show them around here. And so that's the image here of uh, when, it, when a, an important dignitary, an imp- emperor would visit a city, you know, the, the leading townspeople are going to be right out there at the gate uh, to welcome him in. Uh, and he's not taking them off, uh, you know, back to Rome, uh, but they, they're welcoming him to their city. And so then we, we read this image, if Jesus is coming on the clouds, well, we want to be the ones who, who welcome him as people would welcome any important person. Uh, and so, you know, I guess we're going to meet him on the clouds to, to bring, as he is coming, uh, to this place. Uh, not we're meeting him on the clouds so that he can take us off. Uh, so that's where I think the, the difference is. Now, uh, we have to, to ask you, well, are we really floating up here? Uh, is this Paul's you know, language is just getting a little, uh, he's you know, running with the metaphors here, uh, letting things, uh, you know, not intended to be really literal, or is this uh, you know, a property of our new resurrected bodies that you know, we can fly? Um, I, I'm not going to be too concerned about that. Uh, but to make things fit with the, the picture that we have elsewhere of a new heaven, a new earth, a resurrected body. Uh, I think this is welcoming Jesus as uh, the, the king to his kingdom, uh, which is becoming a new heaven and a new earth. Uh, I don't think this is a rapture where Christians float off to heaven. Uh, we'll, we'll keep hitting the same idea. I mean, Paul's going to talk about this other places. We, we kind of mentioned 1 Corinthians and, and Philippians. Uh, but this is our first place to hit it, uh, so I'm going to spend a little extra time on it today to, uh, 
to try to set that, that groundwork for us. Either way, I, I think we end with the same point of, therefore, encourage one another with these words, uh, that, that Paul is, is intending this to, to be a message of encouragement, uh, that you know, some people are going to, to die before Jesus comes. Uh, and at this point, uh, Paul you know, is, is assuming that he's going to be one of the ones who is still alive when Jesus comes. Uh, but even if, if people die before then, we know that God will take care of them, that God will, will raise them from the dead just as he raised Jesus from the dead, and that we will all be with God forever. Uh, whether that's, you want to say that's in heaven or a new heaven and earth, uh, the, the important part is that we are with God forever. And so that is the encouraging message of this. All right. Well, I want to leave First Thessalonians there. Uh, like I said, Chris has, has covered this well for us already. Uh, and let's continue with Paul's travel. So we're going to be you know, back in Acts 18 for a little bit. Uh, so after 18 months or so, Paul leaves Corinth. Uh, and his next stop is going to be the city of Ephesus, uh, where he has it seems has, has not yet visited. Uh, on the way, he stops, or he maybe sets off from Sincrea. Uh, that's where he gets on the boat. Uh, so we read Acts 18.18. 18. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Sincrea because of a vow he had taken. Now, I throw this in here because... I just want any time we get a, a chance to be reminded of Paul the Jew, uh, it's, it's useful for us to do that because we get this idea that, that Paul has this vendetta against Jews of uh, these Pharisees and these legalists, uh, and that's so incompatible with the, the gospel uh, that he knows. Uh, but we see over and over again that Paul continues uh, practicing Jewish things, um, and continues doing these Jewish devotional activities. So in this case, we don't know exactly what kind of vow he takes, but I, I think it's a Jewish vow. Uh, we read in the Old Testament about a Nazarite vow, uh, which you uh, let your hair grow until the end of the, the vow, where then you cut your hair at the temple. Uh, so so, well, why is he getting his hair cut off, you know, outside of Jerusalem? Uh, it could be that, you know, he's, he's kind of marking where it's starting. Uh, so he starts with a, a clean cut, uh, and then uh, as at the end of the vow, he'll see how much hair has grown, uh, and he'll have it all cut off uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, but just to say, Paul continues to do Jewish things, and uh, this is not the only time uh, where he takes, makes a vow uh, at, to show his, uh, his continued practice of Judaism. He's going to do that again. It's going to get him in trouble in just a few chapters. Uh, so I, just, just pointing that out. Uh, the other thing we see in, in Acts 18, we, we get introduced to this guy named Apollos. And we'll just read uh, a few verses here. Uh, so meanwhile, uh, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, 
though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. And when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. Okay? So we have, we have Paul going from, from Corinth to Ephesus, and then he goes on back to Jerusalem. Uh, we have uh, Apollos going the opposite way. He goes up to Ephesus and then over to Achaia, which I, we think is Corinth, uh, is what we, the picture we get from Paul's letters. So they just miss each other, uh, but, but Apollos does run into uh, Paul's companions, Priscilla and Aquila, who have stayed in Ephesus. Uh, so as Paul goes from Corinth to Ephesus, Jerusalem, Apollos is going from Ephesus to Corinth. Uh, we, we, we have him show up again uh, when Paul writes the letter, the first letter to the, the church in Corinth, uh, where uh, we see that there's been some, some factions uh, based on Paul, who was the first one who started the church in Corinth, and now Apollos, who has, has come later uh, and uh, became this, this leading figure by debating uh, the Jews in public. So when you read 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul's you know, talking to the church there in Corinth that he, you know, he just left. Uh, he says, you know, one of you says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos. Aren't you mere human beings? What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. Uh, so we get this picture that in Corinth, you know, it adds Peter in another one that some people say they, they're following Peter. Uh, some people say they're following Apollos. Some people say I'm following Paul, uh, when really they should all be saying, I follow Jesus. Uh, and God has, has you know, set these tasks for these other people to do, uh, but it's really God who is behind all of this. Uh, and so sometimes we, I think we get this, this idea of a, this rivalry between Paul and Apollos, uh, which I, I think is not the case. Uh, because we, we actually keep reading the letter, uh, at the very end, he mentions Apollos again. Uh, he says, Now about our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to go to you with the brothers. He was quite unwilling to go now, but he will go when he has the opportunity. So when, when you read this passage, you, you start to get a different picture, I think. It's not uh, Paul views Apollos as a, as a challenger. He's, he's saying that's the, the Corinthians have that idea. Uh, that, you know, actually, you know, they seem to be getting on pretty well. Uh, that uh, Paul in Ephesus here, uh, Apollos has apparently returned to Ephesus from Corinth, and Paul tells him, you know, you should really go back to Corinth. They, they could really need you uh, there. And Apollos says, I, I can't go right now, uh, but I will go. Uh, so you, you, you read this and say, oh, yeah, they, these guys are really working together. Uh, so I don't want us to be misled by the, the, the start of 1 Corinthians. Uh, Paul doesn't have anything against Apollos, I don't think. I think he's, he's really just pointing out uh, that is a mistake that the Christians there are making. 
Uh, so maybe we'll, we'll come back to Apollos when we get to, to 1 Corinthians, but he, he shows up in this part of the story in Acts. So I went ahead and, and mentioned him here. That's going to wrap up what we consider uh, Paul's second journey, uh, which I, I don't really like. Uh, but if you, if you look at uh, the map here, uh, that outlines his first journey, his journey through southern Turkey. Uh, that's the, the blue and the gold on the map. Uh, shows him going into Turkey and back to Antioch. Uh, his second journey, uh, which goes back through Turkey but doesn't really uh, mention much about it, uh, that's the purple, where it's really this, this journey through Greece. Uh, and then the red shows us his journey back. He just stops in Ephesus quickly, and uh, they, they want him to stay. He says, no, I'll, I will come back. Uh, so and then he continues on his way to Jerusalem and back to Antioch. Uh, so that's going to wrap up what, what would be the, the second journey. Sometime along here, he, he seems to get this idea uh, that the, the, the Christians in Jerusalem mostly Jewish Christians, uh, could benefit from the Gentile Christians, mostly outside of Judea. Uh, the, the Jerusalem Christians are generally poor. Uh, they are facing more opposition from uh, their non-Christian Jews uh, around them. Uh, and then these, these churches in Greece, they have access to, to so much financially, that could we, we perhaps uh, have some way for the, the, the Christians in Turkey and Greece to, to provide some help to the, the Christians in Jerusalem who are poor and have so few resources when we're all brothers and sisters. Uh, and this uh, will be a way for the, these Gentile Christians uh, to, to show their connection to these predominantly Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. Uh, that this has been this rift we've, we've already uh, seen before, uh, that if there's some way for us to, to show our unity. Uh, so we're going to see he's going to start off on what we call the third journey. Uh, and as he does that, he's going to be raising money for a collection. Uh, it's a, what I call his fundraising journey. Uh, so he's going to go back through Turkey and Greece a second time, uh, Turkey a third time, Greece a second time. And this time he's going to be collecting money uh, for the, the poor, especially the, the poor in Jerusalem. That's going to be uh, a main theme of the next part of his life, going to be a theme that, that crops up in multiple letters that we're going we're gonna to talk about. Uh, but we'll... We'll get to that uh, next week. Uh, so Paul's plan to unite Jewish and Gentile believers, uh, maybe that's a little strong, but uh, his plan to, to show unity, uh, to show uh, Christian uh, love for each other. He's going to go back to Ephesus, as he promised, uh, and that's going to be his new home base for work. Uh, he's going to spend an extended period there, just like he did in Corinth. Uh, he's going to be apparently doing lots of travel from that place that uh, doesn't get into Acts. Uh, and so that's why I don't really like the language of, of these journeys. And from Ephesus, 
Uh, he's going to write back to the church in Corinth. We, we already hinted at that, uh, that that's going to be his next letter. And so maybe we'll get into that in a little bit more detail next week. Uh, today, let's, let's close with this prayer of Paul. I mentioned uh, both First and Second Thessalonians have lots of, of beautiful prayers in them. Uh, here's one that reminds us uh, that as humans, we're, we're not just a spirit, we're not just a soul, uh, that we are a spirit, soul, body, all together. Uh, and uh, a reminder of this expectation, this uh, hope we have of the return of Jesus uh, and the encouragement we face, we, we have in that. Uh, so let, let's read First Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. We'll, we'll close with this this morning. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. And I'd say amen. Thank you for being with us this morning. Uh, I hope to see you next week as we continue to, to study the life of Paul.